With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 476th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I am recording this very special episode in Orange, California, in front of an audience of extremely excited students at Chapman University's Dodge College of Film and Media Arts, where I'm very proud to be a trustee professor. Our guest today is a 46-year-old Irishman who has been a bona fide movie star for half of his life. Described by the Los Angeles Times as a compelling actor with a surprisingly wide range and by The Guardian as a pretty boy with the acting chops of a heavyweight, he has worked on films helmed by many of his era's most distinguished directors, including Steven Spielberg, Oliver Stone, Terrence Malick, Michael Mann, Woody Allen, Terry Gilliam, Sofia Coppola, Peter Weir, Yorgos Lanthimos, Neil Jordan, Steve McQueen, Tim Burton, Kenneth Branagh, Ron Howard, and of course his most frequent collaborator, Martin McDonough. And he has shared the screen with many of its biggest stars and finest actors as well, including Tom Cruise, Al Pacino, Jeff Bridges, Nicole Kidman, Denzel Washington, Jessica Chastain, Ben Affleck, Viola Davis, and yes, Brendan Gleeson. But as we will hear tonight, his career has been anything but smooth sailing. There have been giant highs and lows, huge hits and bombs, and moments of triumph and of doubt. But all of it has shaped him into the man and actor who this season, for his performance in McDonough's The Banshees of Inisherin, has already been honored with the Best Actor Venice Film Festival Prize and the Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy Golden Globe Award, his second 14 years after his first, which also came for a McDonough movie in Bruges. He's also been nominated for a Best Actor Critics' Choice Award and is nominated for a Best Actor BAFTA Award. And just last week, for the first time in his career, he was nominated for an Oscar as well. With great appreciation to him for trekking up to Chapman to be with us tonight, would you please join me in welcoming Mr. Colin Farrell. Thank you so much for coming, Colin. We really appreciate it. Let's begin at the very beginning, if we can, for people who may not know. Hello, everyone. <laughs> How's it going? Hey, hey. Jesus. Okay, let me just take a look. Okay. Walking out here like this is just normal. Okay, it's not. It's not really. What was well, normal was the Dave's hot chicken slider I had about 10 minutes ago on my way. That was normal. Hey, Scott. So, great to see you again. And, uh... To begin with, just can you share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Uh, I was born and raised. My name is Colin. I'm an alcoholic. No, no, no. Uh, 
Strong start. Um, I was born in the Coombe Hospital in the Liberties in Dublin, probably about a half mile, a mile away from the St. James's Gate, the Guinness Brewery, which might have been a sign um, of things to come. And my parents, my mom, uh, Rita Nee Monaghan, Rita Farrell, after she married my father, Eamon Farrell, they met when they were, geez, I don't know, maybe 21 or 22. My dad was a professional footballer, soccer player, the football where you use your feet. (laughs) And he made his living playing football professionally until he was about 25, but he had terrible knees. So he packed it in early. And my mother was the primary caregiver, I suppose you would say, uh, for the four kids. I'm the youngest of four. Brother, oldest, two sisters in the middle, one who's here today, Claudine, and uh, myself. (laughs) There you go, Claw, where are you? (laughs) Give us a wave. Oh, there there she is. There you are, sister. So I, I know it's not an award show, but I've been, <laughs> I've been apologizing. We work so closely. I've been apologizing to her for the last two months for never mentioning her. Probably. We'll get the we'll we get work, the real yeah, stories. We work very after. closely. Yeah, we yeah. work very closely together. Have done for 15, 20 years. Awesome. My sense, and I guess we can check this with her after. But let's say the first 16, 17 years of your life, from things I've read that you've said that uh, that have been written about you, you were were you. Finding yourself, is that a nice way to put it? You want it to feel like a deposition all of a sudden. <laughs> In 2002, you said... Oh, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. So the first 17 years of my life? Yeah, before, let's put it this way, before you discovered acting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I obviously, I discovered acting through being a fan of film um, all my life. And I've talked, any chance I've got, that my first memory of going to the cinema was seeing E.T. with my Uncle Tommy and just being so moved and upset and um, you euphoric and hopeful and just just beaten from one side of the cinema to the other side. That was the Savoy Cinema on O'Connell Street in Dublin when I was maybe six or seven. And I've loved film since then. And I was reared on very commercial fare, you know, Indiana Jones and the Back to the Futures. And it wasn't until I was, I think the first experience I had of what became a more kind of intellectual or philosophical power or an existentialist power that a film could have was when I saw Paris, Texas when I was 16 or 17 and a friend showed me Paris, Texas and it just, one clap will do. <laughs> one clap. No, no. Vim Vendors at least There's deserves better, one yeah. clap. No, no. <laughs> but it's, it, was such, it was such a powerful experience for me because as I said, I had been more just um, averse in, in commercial fare up until that point and, and then began a love for a wider array of cinema. But until I was 17, yeah, I played football for years. I thought I was going to be a professional footballer uh, myself until I was about 14. And then I smoked my first joint and I, <laughs> and, I, and I drank, started drinking cans of beer with all the lads and I couldn't make training on a Tuesday. And that was the end of that dream. To quote Barry's character, there goes that yeah, dream. Right. But uh, not as tragic as this one, right. you know, I just... <laughs> But I was never, do you know what the thing was? My dad used to say to me, because he, for a while, coached the team I played on. And he used to say to me, you're not hungry enough. I'd talk about wanting to be a professional footballer like he was, because oftentimes we want to follow in our father's footsteps. And it was a little bit like that for me. I idolized him to a certain extent at a young age. And, uh, and he used to say that, you're not hungry enough. You're not hungry enough. You're not hungry enough. And I think, I, I, I don't know. And I'm not going to make any grand, broad, sweeping statements on how people should live their lives. But if you can find, and I assume 
the majority, if not all of you in this room, have found something or are in the process of discovering something that gives you meaning that you're passionate about. And that means that you're hungry enough to attend to with a certain amount of discipline and structure and all that kind of stuff and passion. And so if you could do that in life and when you go out from here, like so that's what acting became to me. The hunger I didn't have for football, I suddenly had you in this. It. Yeah. But even the path from, all right, football's not going to work out to acting is what I'm doing. Correct me if any of these things are wrong, okay. but was there some line dancing in there? Oh, fuck. <laughs> God, I totally skipped past that. But yeah. <laughs> there was line dancing. Yeah, there okay. was a lot of it, actually, over a nine-month period okay. when I was about 16 or 17. Um, line dancing, strangely, was a huge craze. With a Stetson hat. With a Stetson hat, without sleeves. <laughs> Denim without sleeves. I wore a fucking choker. <laughs> like, it was, it was, it was some, yeah, it, it was, uh, it wasn't really, you couldn't call it authentic, right. shall we say. But, but it was fun. And yeah. I was 17. And I was earning, I was earning, we traveled around Ireland in a, in a Howard, what's his name, Goal? No, that's a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> Howard, Howard was the name of the gentleman who worked for CMT, Country Music Television. And he was a lad from, I think he might have been Texan, I'm not sure, but he had a big old grey moustache and he had a, a minibus with CMT, Country Music Television, emblazoned on the side. And we travelled all around Ireland. We went to Tipperary, we went to Limerick, we went to Galway, and we taught line dancing in, in bars and uh, ballrooms. And sometimes it was up to 800 people. And I'd be up on the stage like Madonna with a headset and my choker <laughs> and my sleeveless <laughs> denim shirt. And I killed it, man. I earned a fortune, 800, 800 pounds, which is what, about $1,100 or something at the time. A week, I was 17. Not bad. But I was miserable. Now, this was already, you had already left school? I had already been asked to leave school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what was, can we ask, uh, was, you weren't upset about being asked? No, no, no. And I wasn't, I wasn't a disaster. I just didn't, re I wasn't really there. I was down, there was a pool, there was a pool hall, there was a pool hall arcade place called The Hideout, um, appropriately enough. And... I used to go to the hideout quite often where I should have been in school. And then there were, I went to, I went to three, three secondary schools. So here you have elementary, middle and high school. At home we have primary school and secondary school. Primary school takes you up to the, the time you're 12 and then secondary school kind of becomes middle and, and high school. And I, I went to three secondary schools. I went to Castle College for three years, then I went to boarding school for a year and a half, that didn't work out. And then I went to a school in the centre of Dublin City, which of course being the centre of Dublin City was surrounded by pubs. It was a terrible idea. <laughs> or a great idea, depending on uh, your perspective yeah, at the time. time. Yeah. yeah, of course, it really was. But I, anyway, look, it was, it was only three or four months short of my final exams. Um, and I had a bit of an issue with one of the faculty and... <laughs> um, and the, the principal of the school, yeah. who was extraordinary, she was our English teacher as well. She was possibly one of my first introductions to drama because she was, we were studying for the Leaving Certificate, which is like your GCSEs, we were studying um, Othello, and she would make the class get up and kind of perform it to a certain degree, you know, with the books in our hands, of course. And so 
Eileen O'Duffy was her name. She was an extraordinary teacher and principal. And she was really sorry. She said, I got the, I'm sorry, but I got the word from the top. You have to go. And I went downstairs and I told the boys and they're like, you're not kicked out. And I said, I'm gone. <laughs> and it was, for me, it was tired to say, you know, I was saying, look, I came here today. It was the only way I could get to a university campus <laughs> after, after 26 years. It's been a long road, but I'm here now. Um, but I didn't, I, it, it wasn't, I, I never, to be honest with you, I never knew how to apply myself in school. I just didn't know. I didn't get it. I might've had a little bit of ADHD, what you would call that now. I was, I found it hard to focus. I was always daydreaming and all that kind of stuff. So when I got shown the, the, the exit door, I was thrilled that day. Now the idea of trying a, uh, acting workshop, we owe to who? Uh, my brother, Eamon. So my brother, Eamon, runs um, a school called the National Performing Arts School in Dublin. And before he established that school with his business partner, Jill Doyle, he was part of another studio that had an acting workshop in it that only had like five or six students. And it was under the tutelage of a really extraordinary actor and kind of something of a, a, a layman historian in regards to theatre. His name is Conal Carney. And Conal Carney was throwing this class on and I went in and it was, yeah, it was, it was a few days and it was the first time I had ever done anything like that. I had ever been exposed to the exposure one can feel. Well, when one is in a space like this or much, much smaller than this, it wasn't the size of the stage. It was a little black box room. And as I said, there was five or six students in Conal and we had to just talk about ourselves. And I found that very, I found it very, I found it very, quite awkward, but I found the awkwardness fascinating because at least the awkwardness was being given a chance to be addressed. Right. It was given a chance to be moved through and worked through. And you, I, and I was having a, given an opportunity to talk about thoughts and feelings and I haven't stopped since, but <laughs> I was given the opportunity, you know, and I, I grew up in a household where, um, where emotions were seen as weakness, which of course is such a, a gross irony now that I make my living. <laughs> and, but I, I, that was like the way I was raised was emotions are a weakness. You don't show, you know, certain things aren't allowed. And so it was, it was incredibly liberating for me. Now this of course, begs the question, what did your folks think when you started to really get into this acting thing? And uh, I think really like um, it seems like you do that class and then eventually you end up going to Australia and, and it gets a little more serious there. Is that right? Um I did. So I did that class. Yeah. And then I should have Wikipedia myself <laughs> before I came. Um, I went to Australia when I was 17. Yep with two friends and I lived there for a year on a one-year visa and when I arrived in Australia I, I, I looked up casting I'd done the workshop the, yeah. that's all I had done yeah. so I looked up I was only going over for a laugh to get out of Dublin I didn't know what I was going to do I was somewhat aimless in life and and so when I, when we landed I never forget we let me and Steph and Paul landed in Sydney we got a room at the Koala the Oxford Koala Hotel on Oxford Street and uh, we got uh, one room twin beds so I said to the two lads you go and get a bit of kip <laughs> I'm going to go for a walk around the city I was 17 it was amazing I had a Big disc man, which was, you know, had an anti-shock system, <laughs> uh, you know, and a CD on my hip and a string vest on. And I thought I'd arrived. Okay. And I looked up casting directors in Sydney and there was a casting company called Liz Mullinar Casting. And I went into their office and I said, yeah, I'm an actor from Ireland. I've done quite a bit of work at home and shit. Told, you know, quite a bit of work at home. And people know me when I walk down the street in Dublin and the nose just nose kept getting longer bigger, and longer yeah. and longer. And, um... And they put me in a, a government commercial for an anti-smoking campaign, which, of course, another irony, because I was on 40 a day by that point. And, 
and it never got released. It never got televised. And it was, it was, uh, and then I did, and then I met a bunch of, a bunch of kind of strange, wonderful, magic bohemian cats, some of who were Russian, and they had this place on a street called Forbes Street, and the address was 281 Forbes Street, and it was the first time I'd had really strong black coffee and had heard the name Tarkovsky and Dostoevsky, <laughs> and all of a sudden I was reading The Master and Margarita by Bulgakov, and it was just, it was such a beautiful education for me because I grew up middle to upper class, but my, my heritage was very working class, so I grew up in this kind of disparate energy of a kind of privilege but then with you know emotions are weakness and you're very lucky to have a roof over your head and so this was none of that it was nothing to do with the economy or nothing to do with class or if anything they were they were totally this group you can imagine were anti-class you know and and it was just amazing education for me and I slept on the couch there and I got to know them and I ended up doing a, a play with them called uh, well, the play I met them on was Kelly's Reign about the Ned Kelly tragedy. But anyway, that's another story. It was the first time that I got to work with a bunch of actors, really work on a text with a bunch of actors was with that crew. And so that trip ends, you go back to Ireland and now it's more serious studying. Uh, what's the, I guess this is the gaiety. So then I went, yeah, then I came home and then I came home and I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I thought acting, but I didn't know how. And I, I, I as I say, I, might have said it to my dad and I don't think he was too impressed by it and um, and then I was I got a job as a waiter in a restaurant and I was drinking way too much and I was really quite miserable actually I think I was I was I, I, I don't want to diagnose myself but I was having a kind of a some version of a low grade depression and I, I, I wasn't really in a great place it wasn't super destructive the way I became years later but I wasn't in a thanks for the laugh <laughs> how dare shame on you I'm joking I'm joking I'm joking I'm so joking um, but I but I, I wasn't in a great place and I, I my brother came in Eamon who runs a National Performing Arts School I think he had kind of set his school up at this point but it was for younger students than I was at this stage I was 18 or 19 and he he came into the restaurant one day while I was on my breakfast break and I kind of shared with him that I was in a bit of a bad place and I wasn't feeling good and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do and da, da, da. And he said, come on, we'll go around the corner and the Gaiety School of Acting was around the corner and he said, we'll sign you up for an audition and I signed up that day and then I went and I got accepted and, and I went to that, yeah. And from that came... Um I believe, right? Chapman University. Yeah, although, yeah, we skip a few things, yeah. but, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, really, you, you go from that, you must have shown some real prowess pretty quickly because pretty quickly you're in a miniseries called Falling for a Dancer. I did terrible in drama school. Yeah? Yeah. The only class I struggled in was acting. <laughs> Not a joke. Well, so... I did great in fencing. Yeah. <laughs> I was fine with shiatsu. I did... I did great in Alexander Technique. I was fine in my dialect classes. The acting class I had an issue with. <laughs> and and I, I, I just, I don't know what it was. But I remember asking the teacher one day after class, you know, I was, I, I was obviously having such a hard time applying what was being said and stuff. And I remember going up to the teacher afterwards and saying, is there anything that I can do? Is there anything? And the teacher looking at me and saying, what is so special about you that you need to stay behind class and ask me? It's weird. It's weird. And I was kind of maybe overly sensitive at the time, but I think a little switch was flicked in that moment. And, and I thought, oh, I don't know if 
I don't know if I like this place anymore. <laughs> now, I don't want to paint the picture of being a quitter or being so sensitive that you get, like I've got plenty of doors slammed in my face. Yeah. More when I started as an actor and doing auditions, got plenty, many times I didn't get callbacks, many times I told I was shite, all that stuff. But this was, I, I don't believe personally in breaking an actor down and building them up. I, I, I think there's, I think there should be something sacrosanct between the acting teacher, acting instructor, professor, and the student. I think it's not unlike, I, I, I really feel it's a very precious and a very delicate relationship through which great self-awareness maybe can be acquired. I'm not saying I ever got there. As I said, I left after one year, but these are the potentials. But the, you have to come, if you're going to be an actor, you've got to come with a vulnerability. And that vulnerability can be so easy, easily kind of discarded, slapped around and damaged. And that's and if you're vulnerable, that and, and a little bit, you yeah. know, because I... I I finished the first year, and look, the Gaiety School of Acting, I want to be clear publicly here, it's a great school, it's a really extraordinary school, and they've, they've produced some wonderful actors and actresses, but um, my experience was just mine, but I finished the first year, and we did the summer break, and I did a couple of auditions, and I got loads of not call, no callbacks, no whatever, and then I did one audition for a TV show, and... Uh, and I got a call back for that and then I auditioned again and, and I got the part and then I had a decision, was I going to go back to the second year or was I going to go out into the world and start working? And I'm not saying because that teacher said yeah, that yeah, one yeah. thing, but I, I did, I, I remember being, I think, surprisingly cogent in my thoughts at 18 or 19 because I remember going, okay, so I have time, I am young, I could go back and do the second year but I have some version of a foundation from the things I did learn, I felt I learned the first year and I'm here to act, so... I just go out and just give it a go and just see, I'll act, I'll learn on the job, you know, yeah. just like you do in life, you know, being a human, you learn on the job with other humans and so. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if this was that specific part, but many series falling for a dancer. And then the part that yeah. for two years was a, a very big deal for you was Danny Byrne on the VC, I guess you would call it like a soap opera. Totally, yeah. Ballet Kiss Angel. So um, tell us, I mean, we've, I've actually talked to here and elsewhere a number of actors who have said that essentially a soap opera while it may not be what actors dream of doing with their lives is the best training ground because you are just you have to vacuum up so many pages of dialogue yeah. you have to learn there's no you screw up you keep going like there's just no mark there's no time for nonsense is that yeah, fair that's very fair but you also of course always reserve the right between action and cut to take your time okay that's where things slow down and that's where even telenovela or or uh, soap opera or whatever that's where there can be a kind of line of connection that equates to a, a sameness of experience to a certain degree but in the in the Preparatory stage, yeah, you're learning, you're just, as you said, you're plowing through pages of dialogue. I mean, I remember picking up the camera on a tripod as the, one of the actors and moving it over to another field and shooting the scenes. And, but it was it was extraordinary training and I got to work with an amazing bunch of actors. Uh, Tony Doyle, who's since gone on. Birdie Sweeney played my uncle. Birdie was one of the first actors, had an extraordinary wit, had done so many. Birdie started off in vaudeville in Dublin in the 40s. So these were the kind of people I was around. There was an incredible sense of history. And I loved the history of of the arts. I love the history of theatre and of film. I, 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 in my own imagination, and maybe it's arrogant because I want to feel connected to that which went before me. I mean, I draw a line back from stage and film to cave drawings. You know, I mean, it's just it, it, the, 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 the need we have as human beings to try and quantify or contextualise the complexity of our experience as individuals and as communities. That need is a very, very powerful need. And if it's not answered, then it, you know, 
if it's not answered, it's a, it's a sadness, it's a loss. And if somebody doesn't answer, if one of you guys don't answer something that you feel is a calling and you don't answer, well, then that's my loss. I mean, it's your loss as well, of course, but you're going to go out into the world and you're going to share your story. And then you, you kind of take away, not my right, but the gift you would be giving me by sharing your story, you know? So not saying that that's, I say that and then I go, oh, do I feel that about what I do? And I'm like, no. So why can't I, apply, why can't I apply that to myself? I'll have to have a word with myself later when I get home about that one. But I, I feel that about others very much, you know, and I felt that when I got onto the set of Balikas Angel, soap opera, yes, but I was working with extraordinary actors really quick and it was an amazing community. I believe that for one episode only, there was a guest actress on Balikas Angel who 23 years later would be in... The Manchies of Anna Sharon with you. Oh, um, Sheila, no. No, wasn't Carrie? Carrie Condon. Carrie and Bally Kay. Carrie Condon. Who was she and Bally Kay? I never met, I never worked with her. Did I? <laughs> I did? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's a, that, I dropped the ball there. <laughs> fucking text her now. I'm looking at my phone. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll come back around to oh, her. Yeah. She, I didn't she, work with her. I mean. No, intermission. The film intermission? Mm. Show me your notes. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Here we go. Here we go. We, she was in an episode. She was on an episode. Okay, so she doesn't say I was wait, on. I see it. she was on. Wait, she going. was on an episode of Body Kiss Angel. The two met at a rap party and they, oh. they had a fling. <laughs> I can't believe you got me to read it. Who said that? <laughs> Who said that? Hey, so okay. moving on. <laughs> That was much ado about nothing. Uh, yeah. That was very much the definition of much ado about nothing. <laughs> Moving on. To you. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the next key person, I guess, that enters the picture, he's not uh, necessarily riding high at the moment, but he was a very big deal at the time, was Kevin Spacey, right? Yeah. And he took it, he saw you on stage. Yeah. You in were doing Mar in the Donmar. You're I 17. Was a, I was doing a play in the Donmar. We're playing a 17. Or sorry, no. Yeah. yeah, no. I was 20, 20 or 21. I was doing a play in the Donmar Warehouse called um, "In a Little World of Our Own" by Gary Marshall. That I think had premiered in the Peacock Theatre, which is the the smaller of the two performance spaces in our national theatre, the Abbey in Dublin. And he came, he was doing the Iceman Cometh in the Almeida Theatre, and he came to see our show, and we all went out afterwards, and he was about to start doing a film with, uh, directed by Thaddeus O'Sullivan. That was the same story as a film that Brendan Gleeson did called The General, about an Irish gangster called Martin Cowell and his rise up through the ranks of Irish criminality and then his demise. Ordinary decent criminal? The General was the film that Brendan did, where okay. he played the same yeah, yeah, part yeah. that then two or three years afterwards. That? Um, and who uh, John Borman directed Brendan's version. Have any of you seen The General? Wow, not a single one. That's impressive. <laughs> it's so good. It's called The Je You saw it? All right, we got somebody. Yeah, it's, see it if any's one. It's it, Brendan's in it, as I said, and it's a true story, and it's directed by John Borman, who's always um, worth very real consideration and Brendan's amazing in it and it's shot in black and white anyway look three years later Spacey was playing the same part it was a bad idea to make the film because the general was so extraordinary right. and the script wasn't really great but he introduced me to Thaddeus O'Sullivan the director of that film and, and I read for it and I got a part in that and then as a result of that Kevin Spacey talked to his agents in Los CAA. Angeles CAA yeah. and said there's an Irish kid that you should see blah 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 so all of these steps are important to mention because they all lead up to Buzz. 
Right. This American GI taken with a bunch of other people who are prospectively going over to Vietnam, yeah. 1971 Louisiana, and your character, this guy, Buzz, who you ultimately played, uh, sort of, it's been, he's been likened to Jack Nicholson's character in One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. He's the anti-authority figure McMurphy. who rouses, yeah, McMurphy, who, who wake, wakes everyone else up to the insanity of their, of what's around them. And so this is Joel Schumacher and Tigerland, your first film, 2000, first note of really big role. You're 24 years old. How, yeah, when it comes out. So even younger, obviously, when, was you, younger, 20, yeah, when you signed up. So how do you, you've got now your guy at CAA. I imagine he puts you on a list of a zillion people that Joel Schumacher will hopefully consider for this part. But not many people come out of the gate in a, this is a star role. Star, clearly a role for a star. Yeah. And you're at that age getting... People today, you can't name too many people who play a starring role in a movie under the age of 30. Yeah. So how did it, can you just take a step by step? I think your sister, possibly the same sister who's with us today, helped to make that possible, right? No, that was the other, the other that, sister. That the other sister. Okay, Catherine. okay, yeah, okay. Two, two wonderful sisters. Okay. One who's with me today and one who's with her kids. Um, I felt the same way about it as you kind of stuttered your way through the last 60 seconds of time. You, like you, you said, I mean, then, then yeah, but how does that, because uh, that's exactly what I felt, Scott. I, I don't mean to, no, 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 but I, 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 I'm not being mean. No. I mean, that's exactly the way you were like, but how, uh, I was like, what the fuck? I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So what happened was, I was, I was being in Dublin, I, w I would go over, I had an agent in Dublin and I had an agent in, in London and I had done the little bit. I'd done Ballycus Angel, which was great training and was lovely and a good bit of exposure. And I was, again, I was getting paid well. I bought a little cottage, 650 square feet in Dublin, which I still own for me kids. And I was going over to London to do a couple of auditions and I was told, Joel Schumacher, The Lost Boys, St. Thomas Fire, etc., is meeting actors in London. And... Uh, he'd like to meet you at the hotel, whatever it was, the Clarence, Clarendon, oh, fuck it, whatever. <laughs> and I, anyway, I went there. I was the last person he was seeing that day, and I was late, I believe. I don't remember much of it. Last of 41. I was the last of 41? Yeah, like that's, again, the odds of this happening are Yeah, crazy. I think he, I remember going into the hotel room, and I remember he was standing up to leave. And he was like, you're late. And, and I was sorry and made some uh, excuse. And anyway, he was, he was gorgeous from the start. Joel, Joel Schumacher was an extraordinary human being and so generous to his core. And he, uh, anyway, we sat and we talked for like 20 minutes or maybe it was two, I don't know, but it felt like a long time. I was very nervous. And, uh, and I went home, uh, flew back to Dublin. And then I heard a couple of days later, listen, he really liked meeting you. He wants you to read the script and, uh, and see what you think. I wasn't told a part or anything like that. And I read the script and it was wonderful. I mean, I was, whatever I was, 21 or 22, I'd never read anything like it. And I'd, you could not fall in love with the character of Boz. As you said, he was the quintessential anti-hero, somebody who, who, who cared a lot more than he was comfortable or willing to, or even wanted to care. But his humanity was so strong and he was so fundamentally decent and so kind of um, anti-system, anti-war, all those things. Uh, and he was funny. Um, anyway, I read that and I, I said to my agent, uh, Josh Lieberman, who I had CAA at this point, they had decided to, I said, it, it, the script is amazing. I'd love it. And he says, well, he wants you to read for the part of Boz. And I said, are you serious? I said, that's the lead. 
And he said, yeah, we just thought maybe give it a go. So myself and my sister um, rented a studio in a, which, I, I've seen your studios here. This is not what I was talking about. When I say rented a studio, it was a bed sit that had a camera in it right. that a casting director used. Right. And we rented that. We paid her like 30 pounds or something to use it. And Catherine was off camera and Catherine read and I did this audition for Tigerland. And then Joe uh, Schumacher said, he liked the audition and not enough to fly me over. But if I happen to be in Los Angeles, like, yeah, I'm just going to fucking, <laughs> you know, get a bus tomorrow. I'll yeah. be passing LA. I'll get off early. Um, he said, if you happen to be in Los Angeles, I'd like you to read in person. So I did. I used that as an opportunity to come over here and do like two weeks of meetings. And, and that's called betting on yourself because that's at that time, that was a lot yeah, of money, Yeah, I did. Right? There's been times through the years where I've said, you know, I'm not that ambitious. I'm like, bullshit, Colin, you got on the plane. Come on. You know, absolutely. I was, I was very, yeah, I was very ambitious and I was very curious to see where it could all go. That was it. I mean, you know, I have been fortunate enough to, to before all the good fortune that I've experienced in the last 25 years through acting and stuff, just even as a kid, I've always been fortunate enough to have a bit of an adventurous spirit. So it was really an adventurous time, you know, landing here as well for the first time in LA was just, it was astonishing to me. It was astonishing. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I've been pinching myself every step of the way. Something always happens that makes me pinch myself. It's either someone I work with or a script or, a, you know, this nonsense. Or Well, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's really interesting though that, I don't know if you would say this was kind of prescient or, or what, but you essentially get the part, which itself must have been thrilling. But then before it's time to go to work, you took a trip. I don't think anybody made you do this, but you, the way you've described it, it was sort of getting to know America, but also in a way saying goodbye to anonymity. Because if this part went the way it seemed like it was going to go, this was going to change your life. Yeah, I... I, I I honestly, as much as I was ambitious enough to get on the plane, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I was too nervous to think about that kind of stuff by that point. Um, if I had allusions to fame and fortune, which I ha had had at various stages, as soon as you get the opportunity, it's like you dream of a door and then the door is presented to you. Just because you dreamt of that door, it doesn't mean once you see the door, you're going to be excited to walk right. through it. It's actually... <laughs> If you're fortunate enough to arrive there, all of a sudden the door becomes a phantom. It becomes something that you're going, be careful what you wish for, or what's on the other side, or, you know. But I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of those things. I remember the day, the evening, it was a restaurant that's closed now called Dominic's on, um, do you remember it? On third? It was a Beverly, close. Yeah, Beverly. Yeah, Beverly, yeah, Beverly. yeah, across from Cedars. Yeah. Well, I was sitting at the back with Josh Lieberman, who's my agent yeah. at the time in Dominic's, and I never forget him leaning into me and going, okay. So I think, I think Joel's going to offer you the picture. I'll never forget it. I went, holy shit. I mean, if I thought, if I thought holy shit when I was told read for Boz, which right, I did. Right. For Josh to lean across the table, it was, it was darkly lit. It was a, the, the outside patio. And I'll never forget him. I think Joel's going to offer you the picture. And I just thought, whoa. And I very quickly then started to get very scared. And I, Arnon Milchin, who owns Regency, wanted to meet with me. He said, Joel's going to offer it to you, but Arnon wants to meet with you before the official offer and Regency were making the picture. So I went in, I met Arnon Milchin, and I hadn't met him before. And he said, so Joel really likes you, obviously. He said, you know, this is a $10 million picture and you're an Irish kid, you haven't done that much. And I said, I, I know that. <laughs> and he said... So here's the deal. And they forget it as well. He said, here's the deal. He said, we'll work with you. 
we'll hire you. He said, but you only get one chance to do your first film. He said, this character's Texan. He's this, he's that, and the other. He said, are you sure you can do it? Are you sure you want to take the chance? And he said, because you get one chance, and you're not one of 20, you're at the center of this film. You get one chance to do your first film. We'll work with you. Don't worry about it. You, you're going you're gonna to do fine. We'll, we'll work with you. And I was fucking, he was saying that, and I was going, Jesus, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm out of here. It's too much. It's too much. Right. Of course, I bullshit and went, yeah, yeah, no, I can do it. Absolutely, I can do it. Absolutely, I can do it. Absolutely, I can do it. And then I went out on my own and took... And that trip that we're talking about, you, I guess you're just... I just jumped just, on the Amtrak and just went around America a little bit, yeah. To know yeah, I did. I went to, I think I went to Louisiana, and then I ended up in Texas and just stayed in motels on my own and kept a journal. And uh, there was a book called uh, Dear Mom... Uh, a snipe, a dear mom, a sniper, a sniper's diary of Vietnam. Uh, sorry, <laughs> which was because uh, I knew nothing about Vietnam. I knew nothing about the history of America at that time. I'd seen maybe by that stage I'd seen Platoon and I'd seen some some films and had a bare outline of what that war meant and the scars that that war inflicted upon uh, the people of this country and the people of Vietnam and thereby the globe, of course, for anyone who's interested. But this book, Dear Mom, A Sniper's Diary of Vietnam, was what it sounds like. It was a, it was a sniper sending home letters to his mother. And as he read the book, you could see, you could feel uh, his humanity paying a price. If I remember correctly, the letters became shorter, they became colder, they became, it was, it was gut-wrenching. So that's all I did. I traveled around a little bit and stayed in motels. That book was kind of, that book was kind of the cornerstone around which I, I, I built whatever Boz yeah. was. Oh, clearly uh, <clears throat> made a big impression and film shot on 16 millimeter, I believe. Yeah. Handheld. Yeah. It was uh, amazing. And a bunch, I mean, Great young actor. Oh, amazing. Shea Wiggum. Oh, Shea Wiggum, Clifton Collins Jr., Russell Richardson, Tori Kittles, Chris Huvane, Lord Restum. 28 days. We shot it in 28 days. No trailers, even though... No million, trailers. Nothing. We did boot camp. We all... They threw us into the, the, the uh, boondocks of uh, Stark, Florida, the Camp Landing. Camp Landing. Uh, we stayed in a day's in. Well, we didn't stay in a day's in. We were stayed in Camp Landing for two weeks. We were woken up at four in the morning with a stick in a barrel. Get up, you! You know, the whole thing. Full metal jacket style. Knowing it was still Artifice, we were still in America, we were safe, but it was, they, they made Captain Dale die, yeah. and Lieutenant Michael Stokey was the one that took care of us, and Oliver Stone had formulated this very specific military regimen, or as close as possible to a military regimen for actors, yeah. around the time that Oliver was making, exactly, yeah. around the time, don't think I didn't notice what I was saying, around the time that Oliver was, was telling his story yeah. through Platoon, right. Captain Dale Dye, who was in the Marines, um, formulated this, this camp for the actors in platoons so that they could get together, they could bond, they could have a shared history and a similar thing happened to us in Tigerland. And to this day, the Tigerland boys are, are like this. We have a text chain. I mean, that's going back 24 years now, you know? And that movie, uh, <clears throat> Time Magazine said, it, it first it premiered at Toronto Film Festival, right? Uh, yes. Time Magazine says, quote, the festival's biggest surprise, close quote, suddenly everyone else is saying, who the hell is Colin Farrell? And then let's just note what the next two years, just, I'm going to list a few things. Give me a second here. Okay, man. <laughs> a summer movie for Steven Spielberg opposite Tom Cruise, Minority Report. You're the, you're the guy chasing, pursuing Tom Cruise's character. Another movie with Schumacher, Phone Booth, shot in just 
10 days, I believe. Days. Yeah, it was fun. This was an idea that Hitchcock had wanted to do and never did. This happens now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> movie opposite Al Pacino, yeah. The Recruit. Yeah. In so this all leads up. Basically, in February 2013, piece of the New York Times begins, quote, not since the ascendancy of Tyrone Power and Gregory Peck has Hollywood been as mesmerized by a pair of bushy male eyebrows as it is, <laughs> as it is by the ebony foliage adorning the forehead of the 26-year-old Irish actor Colin Farrell, projecting a brooding, blocky machismo that suggests a junior Russell Crowe, Mr. Farrell is widely being trumpeted as Hollywood's next big thing in leading men, close quote. So from really like two, three years ago, you're at... I don't know, basically at, at gaiety to now this is your reality. Yeah. Uh, how quickly in your experience and in what ways did your life change? Oh, man. <laughs> how long have we got? There's going to be no one left in here. You're be <laughs> no, like, like Chunk and Goonies. <laughs> and then there was one time when... Um, uh, Oh, my God. I mean, I was shot out of a cannon, you know? I, I didn't, I mean, I've spoken a little bit about a bit of training and a bit of experience in two years on body and stuff, but it was, it, was, it was a lot. It was amazing. It was an absolute gift. It was everything you could dream of. But for a sensitive enough constitution that was afraid of being vulnerable and thereby people being able to discern the weakness that he felt he had within him, it was a lot. And again, I'm not talking about a lot in regard to what people are dealing with every day around this planet. I'm really not. I know how lucky I am and have been. I live in it. But for just what I said, that constitution, it was a lot because I couldn't, I, I didn't feel like I deserved it. And, and you can't actually, at that age, you can't deserve that. The best thing you could do, if I was to talk to you, you know, that question, what would you say to yourself? You know, I go, well, there's nothing I'd say because myself wouldn't listen back then. <laughs> but if, you know... It, you would say, just be grateful. Don't, don't identify too much with it. Don't feel like you don't deserve it. Don't feel like you do deserve it. Deserving is not, uh, that's not what's happening here. Something is happening here. Just stay present in it. Just be grateful, stay present and keep working. And you don't have to feel shame for your success. And you don't have, you know, I'd say those kinds of things, you know, but at the time it was a lot and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I just said, I'm just gonna, I mean, I didn't even say, it wasn't like I had a conscious thought. I think what, I think what might've happened is I was so afraid of the stories that we've all heard about people becoming famous and losing themselves and getting ahead of the, where they're from and thinking they're better than other people. I was so afraid of being perceived as that or actually becoming that, that I kind of imposed a very unnatural sense of uh, stasis in my development. Genuinely, I really do. I, I kind of went, I'm not going to change. Nature, by its very changes. Mm -hmm. Change is an essential part, but somehow through the kind of um, appraisal of the dynamics of fame and all this attention now, the idea that I would change said to me somewhere inside, it would be for the worst. It would be for the worst. So I just didn't grow. I just said, I'm going to stay this way. I'm going to behave this way. I'm going to keep drinking. This way. I'm going to keep doing it. And uh, meanwhile, and it seemed to be working okay for a little while. Until right? it wasn't. Yeah. Well, so this all brings us to 2004, Alexander the Great. Oh, boy. In <laughs> Alexander the Great in Oliver Stone's dream project. Yeah. Alexander. Very much. $155 million budget. Yeah. Shot across three continents. Yeah. 
fairly daring in a lot of ways, including, as the New York Times noted at the time, quote, the film industry has never risked quite so much on a blockbuster film that depicts a leading man as gay or bisexual, close quote. This was the year before Brokeback Mountain. Right. This was a giant undertaking. You get cast as the man of the middle, one of the most famous people who has ever walked the face of the earth. Was it, at the outset, exciting, intimidating? Did you... Did you feel like this had the potential? What did you think it, it had the potential to be? As we touched on before, I, it, was, it, was, it was extraordinary. I had an amazing day. I read the script. The script was extraordinary. It was so full of passion. It was so um, full of, full of um, pathology. On, uh, from every character, they were, they were all so emotionally and psychologically complex. Obviously, it was full of history. There was incredible battle scenes that were written. There were family dynamics that were kind of twisted, but wonderful and intriguing. Oliver wrote an extraordinary script, and I loved it. And I was, I mean, I, if I was nervous before, this was, as you said, I was, I think I was 25, 24, 25 when we went to shoot it. I puked the first day. I'd never puked before uh, as an actor, and I puked the first day in my trailer before I went out. The first day we went out, we shot the Battle of Gaugamela. Again, we did boot camp. I, I had an amazing experience in Alexander, and I want to be very clear as I sit here because I, I just don't want, particularly Oliver, I don't want anyone to think that I'm ashamed of that film. I'm truly not. I'm not ashamed of either the time I had on it, nor am I ashamed of what the film is. And Oliver went back. He cares so much, so much. I mean, you want to talk about drive and discipline and passion. Oliver Stone went back and made four, and they're all released. You can get them on DVD. Four versions of Alexander. And he had to go back to Warner Brothers and get funding. I mean, it has haunted him. How that film was received, I think, has haunted him. And so my issue with it was having with all the other actors in the crew, thrown ourselves so passionately into that story. Then when it came out, I mean... Were you blindsided? Because what you're referring to just, I mean, for somebody who's 18, 19 today, yeah. they were just being born. So I just want to note... Yeah, um, please do. I mean... Like, and, and this is not to, not to pile on at no, all. No, 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 go on. It grows... So this is, again, a $155 million movie. Yeah. Grossed just 35 million in the US and then another 133 abroad. But when you factor in marketing, whatever, that's not yeah, very yeah. good. And you've described, I mean, when we talked for the round table, you, you've talked about expectation versus, I guess you're up in Toronto for the film festival yeah. or something. What was your wake I did up fall, call? I think I did fall into the trap. I, and I won't say it was the last time, but it certainly was the, the time where I, I think I free fell into the trap more than ever before or since. Because we did all believe in the script. We had an incredibly profound experience. Oliver was an amazing commander-in-chief for us all. He was extraordinary to work with. He was so driven. He was so on the front lines. And as you say, three continents. We started in North Africa and Morocco. Then we went to London. We shot in Pinewood Studios. And then we ended up in the jungles of Thailand. It was an extraordinary experience, life-changing for us all. And it was a way of shooting a film. There was no CGI, really. Maybe one hawk in the sky over the Battle of Gaugamela. But apart from that, it was all practical stunts. It was the way David Lean used to make films. Bridge on the River Kwai and what have you. Um, so... Yeah, I believed, as I said in the round table with you, we all thought we were heading to the Oscars. We all, we were talking about tuxedos and fucking, you know, what hotel we were going to stay in. And, <laughs> and then the day came, you know, where the, where the notices came out. And again, I, want, I, I feel I owe it to Oliver to say the notices that came out were for the first version. 
the particularly his third and fourth version were revisited by professors of film and some critics, particularly in magazine form, and they all said it was quite remarkable, kind of across the board said it was remarkable, which means a lot to Oliver and should mean a lot to Oliver because as I said, he cares so much about what he did. But me, I, I felt, I felt such shame. I had, because as I was saying to you before, y- you don't, I certainly don't, I don't think any actor, you don't want to disappoint an audience. Like, yeah, if you're in the rare air that I've been able to fly through, you know, you get paid handsomely and all that stuff. And, but you just, you never want to, and, and because you get paid handsomely, maybe even more so, you don't want, you don't want somebody to pay £10 or $20 or $10 for a ticket or get a, get a nanny or use their one night out since the kid was born and go and see your film, whatever the film may be, and then come out going, that was shit. You don't, you don't want, you really don't want that. Like you, you want to connect with people, you know, and, and it doesn't always work out that way. So because that was such a monumental event and because the global press went for it, the way they did. And it was, I mean, well, I didn't do it. I wasn't. No, but no, no, I know you, but what was the, it was, it wasn't nice. It wasn't nice. It was, well, you've said it was every uh, word they could put in except great. So Alexander, the, yeah, Alexander, the, this Alexander, the, Alexander, the boring Alexander, the, Alexander, the useless Alexander, the fucking <laughs> next, you know? Yeah. And so it was, I, I was mortified. Yeah. It was kind of, yeah, I felt I kind of, I kind of felt I had a coming. The day the reviews came out in Toronto was a was a tricky day. Because you're saying, let's remember, pre-Rotten Tomatoes, so you're literally, people are, were tiptoeing around you about what was what what it was? Well, no, we were up in Toronto at the film festival, and uh, uh, actually my sister, Claudine, who's here, she said, the reviews are out, and, and I went to Aunt, and she went, oh, God, it's not good. And I went, what do you mean? And I, I it wasn't that I... I mean, we were all we were all joking about the Oscars and stuff, and, but it wasn't that I really believed that either. But when I saw what the reception was, it, it yeah, it rattled it rattled me. Do you greatly. think it was people, you know, because a lot of the coverage in those early years, going back and reading to prepare, you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the comments were, you know, this guy is I got the ladies. I got no, but even building up, forget about Alexander, just building up that you know. It felt like people were looking to take you down. Uh, a notch. Yeah, I was having way too much fun. Apparently, <laughs> I think so. I think I think I would have annoyed me if I wasn't being me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'd right. come out and say, oh, "Fuck this, fuck that, <laughs> cigarettes," and you know. And then I was on the red carpet with right. whoever, and I was just—I mean, I was just—I was all over the place. And but again, you're, people forget how young. Again, there are very few movies. No, I was a today. kid. Maybe Timothy Chalamet. Beyond that. Under thirty, yeah. who are who are at the level of he's stardom good, that you were. Though I love it when I see someone who's a younger actor and they're yeah. taking care of themselves and they're taking the craft serious and it looks like they're living below the radar. I go, good for you, yeah. good for it's you. Because it's tough. No, I did it the other way around. Yeah, <laughs> I did it the other way around. Yeah, I went above the radar. Usually, if you're trying to fly drugs into a country, you try to fly <laughs> below the radar. I flew above the radar, you know. So it was just. But, but let's, what's amazing is. You were still. It's not like you were suddenly uh, untalented. Like it, you're, you continue right after that was the New World, which is Terrence Malick, only his fourth movie, one of the greats. Yeah, it's a Criterion Collection movie, Immortal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. So yeah. you were doing like Paris, John Texas. Smith, right? Yeah, exactly. Along with Paris, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, that was right after. But it seems like overall, if we're looking at a, if we're literally mapping out a trajectory here, yeah. it was. Maybe from Alexander 
to Miami Vice, it was yeah. kind of plummeting, right? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Not I, the quality of the work, but the, what, the uh, way you felt? Because Miami, I mean, Alexander 2004, The New World 2005. I mean, acting, acting is a... Yeah. Whether you do it at a $155 million budget film in the North African desert or you do it in a black box theater or you're, or you're rehearsing a monologue in your bedroom, it's a, it's a very personal thing. And you can only draw from within. You observe without, but it's how you internally process what you're observing that you draw from. So yes, you draw from the world, you draw from what's happening politically, what's happening socially, the history of our shared experience as human beings. But you're drawing from your perception, of course, of all those things. So with that in mind, your ability to do the work, whatever the work may be, and, and maybe this is the same with many other things, certainly in the arts, I would imagine, because there's such a psycho-emotional connection to what you do, your ability to do that with integrity and with discipline and with clarity, certainly my ability at that point was beginning to take a pummeling. And so, because I was kind of in the throes of addiction at that point, it wasn't, I wasn't having much fun. I was still pretending like I was, but I was fairly sick. Well, and you've said, basically, you went right from the set of Miami Vice to try to deal with that. Yeah, I went, they literally, we wrapped, um, you know, but it, it, when I think about it now, and I'm speaking to you, you all in this very intimate setting, um, <laughs> for this therapy session we're sharing, uh, <laughs> When I think of it, though, I, it, it's, it's and just a very personal example of how you do, and you've heard it ad nauseum, I'm sure all of you, you grow most through life in times of adversity, which doesn't mean, uh, for me, I, I've had to at times clarify that that doesn't mean I should invite pain in or difficulty. Life will take care of that for me. <laughs> life will take care of that for all of us. It's one of the things that makes life sad, but also makes life very meaningful, is that we all have to face adversity. We lose those we love. We don't get the jobs we want. Our hearts are broken in romantic relationships, whatever it may be. So I say that to say that as much as I found certain moments in the career tricky, you know, they were kind of the, the kilns through which I was hardened a little bit. Yeah, Miami Vice, we wrapped Miami Vice, and they said, that's a wrap Miami Vice, and I was in a car, airplane, woke up three days later after detox and rehab going, oh my God, I've just become like, if I wasn't already a cliche, I'm now, I'm in rehab, what the fuck? And I had to start, I had to start all over again. But that is where, you know, for Not in acting, I just want to be clear, it wasn't yeah. like I started all over again in acting, you know, because <laughs> I was asked after the Golden Globe from Bruges, they do a, uh, a Q&A after yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you win something, you like go back and they, yeah. yeah, and someone was like, do you think, someone asked me, I remember, do you think it's hard, harder for famous people to go through, I was think I was a year and a half out of rehab yeah. when I did in Bruges or something, um, do you find it hard for, you know, if everyone's looking and people are writing about you, it must be harder to get, to go through rehab and try and have recovery, and I was like, are you fucking joking? me I came out of rehab I had three films lined up and a house and no not harder absolutely not so but, I want to make sure I didn't say I, no, I started from scratch I didn't start from no scratch but I think what we can acknowledge is that for a lot of people they it's not necessarily coming out of you bottomed out as you've yeah. kind of put it yeah, yeah but then when you came back to acting it was seems like probably it's it has to be a kind of a conscious concerted effort a very different kind of career since then. And let's, what, what, what I'm talking about is you had been in these large scale, big budget, star driven, high concept kinds of movies, right? 
When you come back, I'm just going to mention a few of these. Mm -hmm. 2007, Cassandra's Dream for Woody Allen. 2008, In Bruges, which is the first time working with Martin McDonough. Yeah. Thank you. 2009, Undine, Neil Jordan, back in Ireland. Yeah. 2009 as well, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus stepping in for when Heath Ledger suddenly passed away. You and Johnny Depp and Jude Law, Jude Law stepped in, finished the film, I believe donated the... Uh, salaries to Heath's daughter. I mean, it was a really nice thing. 2009 as well, Crazy Heart. 2010, uh, The Way Back for Peter Weir. The point is, these are not the kinds of movies that you were doing before. These are now much smaller scale, character driven. Did something switch in your mind? Did the industry no longer see you the same way? What, how did that change happen? I suppose, again, ironically, within an imposed limitation, great expansion can take place because the phone wasn't ringing. Studios weren't offering me big pictures. It was like I, I burned some bridges. And I didn't, uh, like I didn't have a bad reputation. Well, I wasn't turning over tables and setting trailers on fire and shit. I was just, this business will forgive you a lot if your films are making money. Right. And, and so they'll, they'll pretty much, you know, they'll get you up, they'll do what they need to get you on the set. And, you know, I don't know how much, the, the bottom line at a certain point is, is you know, king. Um, so the film stopped. But what it did was it freed me up, to be honest with you, to just allow me to, I mean, the films that I did that m maybe could be um, accused of having not worked commercially or critically or whatever, they weren't terrible choices. But, but I still, at that stage, I don't think I was connected enough to myself, really, to know why I was doing them. I was doing them because I had the opportunity. I was doing them because I knew I was very lucky. I was doing them because I had this career that was kind of just snowballing and at it, for a while I was getting bigger and bigger. None of it made any sense to me. And then there was a, a calm after the storm, not before. You know, it was a calm after the storm. And I was left to, because when I went to rehab and whatever it was, 2005 or six, mm. I... Like if you, if you live a certain way as aggressively as I did, and then that way is gone, you kind of go, who am I? Like really, who am I? Who am I? Who do I want to be? What have I done? What have I mean? You just, it was a very confusing time. But again, through that confusion became a kind of a gentle clarity. Well, you had said, quote, you develop such effed up attachments that you need to be confused and in pain and high to create art. Yeah, bullshit. No, no, no. That, no, but I'm saying but, not that, yeah. that that's what you felt you had. Yeah, no, because I said that. I'm not saying you said bullshit. I'm no, 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 but, but I get the con what I'm saying is you said that that looking back, that yes. that was what you felt you had needed to do. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, there was a time for sure in my life where, as many of us do, we think because because great art has been created by people in the history of mankind who have been going through extraordinary amounts of pain and who have tried to reconcile their pain with the world around them, who have felt guilty for the very gift of life, who had felt un unworthy for the very gift of life, who can't find meaning in life. So, you know, so yeah, I, I think there was a certain kind of, uh, understandably and common enough, romanticizing of exploring darker aspects, in, including you know, the, the darkness that one can feel when one is really hurting oneself over and over and over again. And what it allowed me, and thank you for bringing me there, what the years after that period allowed me to do was realize 
you don't, again, what I was just saying, you don't have to create pain. You don't have to inflict pain upon yourself as a human being. It's a very painful experience to be human. It just, it really is. And again, I want to preface, or not preface, but I want to add on now that I know how lucky I am. I know that I have, but you know, single dad of two kids. My oldest boy has had issues that he's had. He's magic. But I mean, I still have a life. I do know how much milk costs. I still, I live in the real world to a certain degree as real as, but, but life, just life, just being a human can be a very confusing, confounding, painful experience. So there's, there's plenty of pain just by virtue of that. And there's plenty of pain in the world around. We see it on the streets of Los Angeles. We see it on the streets of Dublin. We see it on any streets in any major city in the world. You see it on the news all the time. It, there's so much loss. There's so much suffering. So the idea, it actually became kind of something that was a bit gross to me that I would hurt myself unnecessarily to live in a place of pain so that my art could. Bullshit. If you have any aspect, which we all do, any aspect of huma uh, humanity, empathy, it's kind of one and the same almost, they're synonymous at least. If there's any aspect of empathy within you, you don't need to create pain for yourself. It's, 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 it's all around us. It's a fact of life. And so you're distilling that. And not just pain, beauty as well. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean to bring it on a down. I realize <laughs> we haven't had a good laugh for about eight minutes. <laughs> but, um, but like so much beauty as well. And they are, you know, they're the two obvious polarities between which this whole maelstrom of experience exists, you know, the joy and, and the pain. But you were saying something a second ago about a sense of maybe not feeling worthy of the opportunity, the good things yeah. that come along. Yeah. When you came back from this and Martin McDonough, who at the time was, had not made a feature film, but had won an Oscar for a short film, yeah. had already established himself as one of the great playwrights. He comes to you with, uh, in Bruges and says, I want you to be in this. I want you to star in this. And you say what? Cast someone else. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, and he, and why would you say that? I was feeling pretty low on myself, to be honest. Yeah. And I, I, I realized what the public perception of me had become, and I really appreciated the piece of writing that I had read. I mean, don't get me wrong, I really wanted to do it, but I also didn't want to do it a disservice. And the part of me that didn't want to do it a disservice or believed that my presence in the film would do the film a disservice was the part that spoke up when I met him in the Hudson Hotel that day in New York. I did, I said to him, you should really cast someone else. I remember saying, I, I think the words I used was, I come with an awful lot of baggage. And for the audience to come in and have that baggage already or God forbid stay away from the film completely I said it's better the film deserves more and he was like okay thanks yeah you're not the casting director so shut the fuck up I, I, I want you in the film and then I quickly turned about face and well thankfully he said that because yeah it was I, life changing for me I rewatched it last, last night it was oh, terrific Ray Hitman haunted by a terrible mistake opposite Brendan Gleeson, yeah. who again we saw tonight in yeah. a film 14 years later with Brendan and Martin. He's 21 years older than you. Brendan is? Yeah. <laughs> you don't appear to share much in common about your, the way you no. lived your lives. <laughs> and yet, you two, as much as your characters in both of those, well, let's say in, in, in Bruges, yeah. seem to really be like like brothers yeah so no man i can't i can't i can't i don't know i can't explain it um i just i just remember uh i've talked about it before uh, but I, I remember the first time I, I knew brendan's work before i met him um i had seen him in the general you know which again the general john yeah. Bowman. i'd seen him in that film i'd seen him in other things i'd seen him playing michael collins in a thing called the treaty for bbc i think television I, he was just an extraordinary actor and he was he was well known at home i think he'd been a brave heart as well at that point and 
But anyway, I was meeting him in the Chelsea Hotel in New York and he knew I was sober a year or two or whatever. And I went into the Chelsea Hotel and we sat down and he's a, he's a, as you can say, he's a big, robust, full of life, very vital, very highly intelligent, incredibly charismatic, ultimately kind to his core man. And, um... I met him, we sat down in two chairs, not unlike this, and there was a rickety old table in the middle, and he went, will you have a drink? And I remember for a second going, fuck. <laughs> and because and I still wasn't comfortable with this brave new world. And, uh, and so I went, and he went, I, I have a, wait, let's see. And he went over to this little fridge, and he, I opened it up. It looked like it wasn't plugged in even. And he opened the fucking thing up, and he said, I still are sparkling. <laughs> and in that moment, I just kind of fell in love with the man. That's it, yeah. Because I, you just realise in that moment he called someone or he went to the bodega on the corner or something happened today where he said the words, could I have a bottle of still and a bottle of sparkling? And I just thought, that's a fella that'll look after you. That's great. That's a fella that'll... And from that day on, like, honest to God, we had a conversation that day because he wrote, he adapted uh, Flann O'Brien's at Swim Two Birds and he did an extraordinary adaptation of a novel that seemingly should have been impossible to write in the first place. He did an extraordinary adaptation. He was going to direct it and we never got to get it made and maybe someday down the road. Mm. But we, we started a conversation there that just continued until we done, we didn't, we weren't meeting for Bruges. It was a couple of years, a few years before Bruges. I don't know what it is, man. I just, I love the fella. He makes, he makes sense to me. Well, and that's a role that for you, people have said a lot of the reviews, if you go back and look, allows you to do everything. You are, their character is, Sexy and charming. He's mean and tough. He's vulnerable and emotional. All these, all these things, right? And he, he gets to. It's you don't often get a, a character with such multi dimensions. Um, and the film opened Sundance 2008. Guardian writes, "Quote: The result is like watching Pulp Fiction's Royale with Cheese Exchange stretched over 90 minutes. Only it's braver than Tarantino because these hitmen never disappear into cool." Close quote. You win a Golden Globe. This is a long way from where you had been. Thank you. Lovely. So anyway, I guess the Golden Globe, you can, people can put more emphasis on an award or different things than, than make sense. But for you, that's got to have felt like a moment where I've come back from a pretty dark place, and that's a pretty, pretty great place to have yeah. ended up. Yeah, and there's a difference between feeling... Um, there's a difference between feeling humble are humbled and feeling shame or ashamed. And the first time I had a bit of success, I felt this kind of inbuilt shame and ashamed of the success in the world that I lived in. So many people working so hard, doing so much, struggling to do. And I had all this shit when I was 23, 24, 25. I, I just, I couldn't make head nor tail of it. It didn't make any sense to me. And, uh, and the second time around, I just found myself humbled by the reception that Bruges had got. I really didn't expect it. Um, and I was just, gratitude came in where shame had existed before. And that was kind of an extraordinary grace for me, you know? You and Martin were back together four years after that, Seven Psychopaths. Um, a movie that one has to kind of assume was somewhat based on... On Martin himself. On Martin, a frustrated writer named Martin who's writing a script called Seven Psychopaths. <laughs> uh, Ooh, so meta. So meta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but obviously you and he were developing a, a special bond that's continued. Yeah. I have to ask you the, the follow-up question about him. What is it that makes him so, so good? 
What does it make him so good? Yeah. I have no idea. He's a mystery to me because, you know, people see his work and they think he must be really kind of uh, dark and Machiavellian or, and he's not. He's super bright, of course. And he's got one of the most potent imaginations I've ever encountered. I mean, the places that he goes to. But he's a really sunny, congenial, gorgeous man. You know, he's a gorgeous human being. And... Uh, and I have the old love for him as well. You know, we've been through quite a bit. I'm so grateful for what he has brought into my life. Um, and, uh, and when I say into my life, my life as all of our lives extend into the lives of those who care about us. So if I say Martin did some, brought so much into my life, he brought so much into my children's lives and families, you know, it, it's that kind of thing. So it's very profound, the relationship I have with him. And we don't see each other. Like I, I won't see Martin sometimes for two years, three years. And then he'd be in LA and you'd get a call and you go out and you get a bite to eat. And it's just, you pick up where you left off. It's that kind of thing. But his, his ability to mix tones that don't usually uh, present themselves with such fluidity and such harmony is extraordinary. His ability to make you laugh one minute and then shock you with the depth of emotion and kind of sympathy the next, um, have you aghast with how macabre it is. But ultimately, he's ultimately he's, an, he's a really, I don't know if you like me saying this, but he's an incredibly sensitive man. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's got an incredibly kind spirit and uh, also a, a, just a really dark imagination yeah, no, as well. He's got a really twisted imagination as well. I mean, I can't say he hasn't, you know? No, for sure. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming to the present, I'm going to just first mention these last few years, just a couple of titles to show. I mean, consider the, the range here. Saving Mr. Banks, the alcoholic father of Emma Thompson's P.L. Travers. That's a family film, essentially, 2013, 2014. Miss Julie, for Lee Volman, directing it with Jessica Chastain. Yeah. That is as Art House and, and film, I remember Toronto Film Festival. Then you go to True Detective uh, season two. This is a Thank you. first time back on TV, probably since Bally Kiss Angel, uh, yeah. right? Uh, very different world in TV now. Yeah. Then one of the craziest, in the best senses, ideas I've ever seen, the first English language film from Yorgos Lanthimos, The Lobster, in 2015. Thank you. <laughs> Brings us to your back-to-back Movies with Nicole Kidman, Yorgos's *The Killing of a Sacred Deer* (2017), and *The Beguiled* (2017) uh, as well. So the point is, as the final question before we close on on uh, *Banshees*, just these last few years that have been building to this moment, have you felt? I mean, if you were to ask critics or people that write about, it, they say you're evolving and getting stronger as an actor. All these things that have been building up to *Banshees*. Is there a, more than, you know, is there something that you can shed light on for why that would be? Is something in your real life changed? Is something in uh, the way you approach acting change just leading up to, to Banshees? I don't think so. It's yeah. weird. I mean, yes, all the above. Uh, but I don't know. You know, one of the things I love about what I do for a living and what we're involved in, and it's also the thing that is, again, simultaneously 
frustrating is that it's it's not really quantifiable. Yeah. There is no such thing as a certainly brilliant film or a certainly terrible film. Everyone will find something to be compelled by or repelled by in every piece of theatre, every piece of literature, every painting on a canvas, every song, every movie. So that's lovely because it means there's there's it's constantly organic it's 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 growing it's it's you know contracting it's um and so i i don't know i don't know i'm just on a, i just had a bit of a decent run and honest to god like if it changes tomorrow then you deal with that like my kid said to me dad dad you've had like a great year you know <laughs> what do you, i swear he said like what are you going to do next year and i said henry who knows man i mean if we ever drop next year then you can bang on your <laughs> this is it we're just you know well your kid so- is correct though because 2022 one year after yang a movie that goes to the Cannes film <laughs> festival wow Thank you. No one saw that. That's... <laughs> Thank you. Thank After you. Yang was at Cannes, playing the Penguin in the Batman, which was a big blockbuster. Thank you. 13 Lives, an acclaimed drama about a real real person. You're playing an amazing story. And then, of course, starting at the Venice Film Festival, where you were awarded Best Actor, Banshees of Sharon, back with Martin, third time, first time in... 10 years yeah. since since Seven Psychopaths. We've just seen it here in the theater. Most people listening will have seen it as well. You had apparently heard about this years ago, but it was, Martin wasn't happy with it, right? The, yeah. Or the, what, what was wrong with it in his mind at the time? And were you surprised that it came back around? Uh, there was nothing wrong with it in my eyes. Um, I read it about six or seven years ago and it was... I think it was called the Banshees of Inishmore at that point, but he didn't want to name it after a specific island, which was fair enough and understandable enough. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was brilliant, but it was more, it was more plot heavy. The, there was a soldier from the, from the, uh, the mainland was coming over to the island. It ended up in a big shootout on the beach. My character bled out at the end. It was all very, very dynamic and very, very super violent. Um, as violent as this is, the the violence is very intimate and it's self-inflicted and it's it's brutal, don't get me wrong, but this was just a bigger scope of a film. And Martin wasn't happy with it. I thought it was fucking one of the best things I ever read. That shows you how where his bar is. And he was like, nah, shit. And, <laughs> and then five years later, he sent me and Brendan an email going, hey, fellas, so I did a little bit of work on the script. Have a look and tell me what you think. And I was a little bit at first, I was a little bit like, oh, my character was cooler in the first one. <laughs> a little bit. Wouldn't be hard, but uh, I was a little bit. My character was cooler in the first one. He died in a, he died in a rocking chair with a gun in his hand, bleeding, you know, to death. And, and this kind of scared me a little bit, to be honest with you. Well, is that because... Whoa. I mean, you're saying there's basically not one element here of, and I guess in some weird ways, maybe like the lobster, but just this is not a guy who's cool or trying to be cool. He's not heroic or trying to be heroic. He's just a regular guy in every way trying to live his life. And all of a sudden it's jolted. And I guess is that's fairly uncommon for what you've been offered the chance to do in your career, right? I mean, just Martin's just a very uncommon writer and he writes uncommon characters and he creates uncommon scenarios and he makes uncommon films. I mean, he makes very singular, extraordinary films as far as I'm concerned. So with that in mind, yeah, anytime, the three times I've got to open page one on a Mark McDonough script, it's a moment. 
It wasn't so much of a moment with Bruges because I didn't have any context. I don't know if I'd seen Six Shooter, his short film yet. I knew about his plays, but I didn't have... But by the time I did in Bruges and what that meant to me, and then I knew Seven Psychopaths was coming, opening that first page was a thing. And by the time I knew Banshees was coming 14 years after in Bruges, and I knew Brendan was going to be in it, opening page one on the Banshees, I was so tickled and excited and nervous. And um, But he just... I mean, for me, it, was, it's a, it felt like a very singular character when I read it. And it... Yeah, for me, you just you kind of want to do different things all the time. It's just more fun, man. And I just you, I just go where the curiosity takes me, you know, if I'm allowed and with the things that I'm presented, you know, just go something kind of provokes you or disturbs you a little bit or moves you and you, you don't quite understand it, but you know you'd like to. And so then you just... You know. Three weeks rehearsal, eight weeks shoot. He loves to rehearse, Mark. However many animals uh, you are associating with in this film. Yeah, Jenny did a great job. Hey, Jenny gets... Uh, <laughs> um, all of which, I guess, you know, people, people have many questions when they come out of this movie. And in fact, I've seen you and Martin and Brendan have your own sort of disagreements about what it's trying to say. In your, I understand it's just, it's your opinion, maybe different from the others, but what do you, you know, everything from the Irish conflict, conflict in Ireland over the years to like, there, there have been so many interpretations. What do you believe people, what, what do you believe people are, should take away from this? I don't, I honest, God, I know it's so twee, but I don't, I don't know, whatever they take away from it. I mean, you're, you're, you, you lack ownership of us, of course, as soon as you walk away from it and, and then it goes where it goes and it finds who it finds and they find it in whatever way they find it. Um, I suppose for me, for me reading it and doing it, the importance, the importance of companion, and I'm someone, by the way, who has grown into loving his solitude, like, I, I do love to be on my own. I don't get as much solitude as I would like, even at times. I get up on a hike, go up into nature, a little road trip on my own every now and then or whatever. But um, I really appreciate my solitude and stuff. Having said that, for me, the importance of community and the importance of having people to lean into and how at times, at times we can see the best of ourselves. If we lose sight of what's actually in the mirror, we can see the best of ourselves through our friend's eyes and they become that mirror or our siblings' eyes, or our parents' eyes or whatever it is. So the importance of companionship, the importance of community, but those same things that are important can be toxic, can be very toxic, but they have a huge effect on our lives. And the experience of being human is a lonely one. And, and anything that can, in an undamaging way, alleviate the fundamental aloneness that we experience, anything that can cut into the loneliness, being, of course, different from aloneness, but one feeds into the other at times. Mm -hmm. And that's what friends are. And so it was, you know, just that simple thing. Martin wanted to make a breakup film. He just wanted to make the saddest breakup film he could. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. He said, yeah. I just wanted to make a really sad breakup film. That's what I wanted to do. And so it was that. It was the dissolution of a relationship. And the dissolution of relationships can be a very painful thing, even if the relationship was painful. And the relationship in this wasn't painful. We were besties. BFFs. Yeah. <laughs> Smiley face. We were BFFs. And then he had to go and decide that he wanted to be remembered and legacy. And the danger of legacy as well, you know. I mean, I don't know. It's, you know. Worrying about what? Well, yeah, worrying about what you're going to leave behind. I get it. Jesus, I get it. But worrying about what you're going to leave behind, you know, you'll, 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 you'll miss what's right in front of you sometimes, right. you know. And maybe that's okay too. And maybe the world will reap the rewards. But I don't know if the person who's creating will. Last question for me. Last week... You woke up on Tuesday morning and learned that, for the first time, Colin Farrell is a, an Oscar nominee. <laughs> Not only that, 
but so are his three principal co-stars, Brendan Gleeson, Carrie Condon, Barry Keoghan. Yeah. Martin McDonough is nominated for Picture, Director, and Screenplay. God. The movie is nominated for more Oscars. The only, only one movie has more nominations, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Nine is w- pretty unbelievable to- Not, total. Insane. And in fact, a little, little fun side note for our Irish listeners. Come on. A full one quarter of the acting nominees. No. Four of them from your no. movie, one of them being Paul Mescal, yeah. are Irish. Yeah. One quarter of ah. the 20. Mad. Um, just, what about that? We've been through a, a, a journey talking about what, what you've been through tonight. To have it come to where we are at this moment, just take us into your no, mind space. No, man. I'm still, trying to, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out, man. It's just mad. Because we had the most extraordinary, I, like, I swear to God, we had the most extraordinary experience off the west coast of Ireland last summer making this film. The sense, I talk about sense of community and sense of family. Like, there was a version of this story that was way less violent, just as funny, and uh, that was taking place off camera between the cast and the crew. It was an amazing, we all came together. We were in two of the most beautiful parts of the world, Inishmore, the biggest of the three islands that constitute the Aran Islands, and then Ackle Island, an extraordinary, extraordinary island. And the locals brought us into their lives and they worked on the film and it was amazing. Done. Check. Uber. I'm going home. It's grand. That was like, got paid nicely and all. And it's like, unspoiled, rotten. And then this shit happens. <laughs> and you just go, holy God. I didn't see it coming. And I was just trying to, you know, just enjoying it. I mean, Kerry came over to my house. Kerry texted me, what are you, are you going to watch it? Are you going to go to bed? The nominations, are you going to watch it? Are you going to go to bed? And she lives just around the corner from me here in Los Angeles. And, uh, and my two sisters, my youngest son was with me and my two sisters were coming over and one of them was bringing her husband, Mark. He said, I'm coming over as well, <laughs> five o'clock in the morning. And so I said to Kerry, no, I said, do you want to come over here? And she's like, I don't know, should I? Or maybe I'll go to bed, I don't know. And I, I said, should I come over here? I said, I'll put the kettle on, we'll have a cup of tea and we'll watch it for the crack. Come on, for a laugh. And, um, and that's what she did, five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Open the door, it's pitch dark. There was Carrie with her bag. How are you? Who you again you? known for a very long time? Right? Well, I've known for. We won't go back there, but I've known for a very long time. <laughs> and in she came, and the kettle got put on, and I had a box of Ferrero Rocher in the pantry. And right. let me tell you, when the Ferrero Rocher come out in Ireland, you know it's a serious occasion. <laughs> so the, the Ferrero Rocher came out. The, the tea got put on. I had two cans of Guinness Zero yes. myself. Yeah, exactly. Not a gateway drink right, at all, right. by the way. The two cans of Guinness Zero, and uh, my son. I woke my son up. And so my son was there, my two sisters, brother-in-law, Kerry and myself, and we watched it unfold. And we were just thrilled, just delighted. And look, six weeks, six weeks, it's something that in a few years, if anyone wants to ask me a question about it, I can return to it and say a few words. But six weeks, it'll just be a memory. It'll be done. This whole fucking thing will be done, man. Like, I don't know how many years I have left, how many years, this whole thing, it's over like that. So we're just trying to, just not even trying to, we're just enjoying it and, and, and knowing it's a moment in time. And then, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And we are going to close with our very grateful students. Uh, I'm telling you, these guys were lining up and very Instagramming everything about this. This has been a big deal. So we're going to close with over here. Hi. Hey. Um, My name is Rachel. Um, Hey, Rachel. Question for Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Scott, so much for coming out tonight. Um, Um, but thank you so much thank for coming you. out tonight. Thank um, you for coming out. I as really well. appreciate it. I'm sure we all do. But, Same. Um, Thanks for coming out. Um, uh, 
Uh, there's a conversation in the film about niceness and how it affects your legacy. Um, and hearing your story, and I mean, it's truly inspirational and just so great to hear. But I just was wondering how, what niceness means to you and how it's affected you in your life. Um, I mean, look, we can't be walking around the world high-fiving everyone we see and, morning, morning, how are you, how are you, how are you? You know, you just you drive others and yourself mad. I, I, to be honest with you, I, I suppose extend the courtesy to yourself to try and consider your own emotions and your own thoughts and where they come from and what you don't like about them or what you do like about them. Maybe that's the fundamental niceness. And then from that, you can extend the same courtesy that, to the people that you encounter. Again, not every single person and not, you know what I mean, but the people in your life that mean something to you and strangers every now and then when you're afforded the opportunity to have, we've all had connections with strangers, you know, whether sober or drunk or whatever, where somebody comes into your life, you talk to them at a bus stop for 20 minutes and all of a sudden they, they alter your perception of things that you didn't even know you had perceived in another way, but you realize you had. I mean, human beings have an extraordinary ability to inform each other and affect each other in the most marvelous of ways. And of course, there's the other end of the scale that we touched on earlier. But I think that that maybe is niceness, you know, just just a bit of consideration of self and consideration of the other. Just that simple, you know, maybe. Hi, thank you so much for being here and taking time to tell your story. Very welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, my question is, what's the most memorable note you've gotten from a director? <laughs> <laughs> Or just one that stands out I to just you remember the director saying to me years ago, stop doing that with your eyebrows. <laughs> I should say to him, see? See what happens when I get free reign with these bad boys. Uh, no, but I do remember that. That was, that was painfully specific. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, some directors do have, like, they don't have much time or desire to you know, be soft around what they want from you. And that's grand and you have to thicken up and stuff. But, I, I, you know, uh, Martin's super specific. I can't remember any particular thing he said, but he's really specific. Because I think when he writes as well, there's a musicality to his dialogue. I think he hears it all as he writes it. And then certainly the first time he went to work, he was looking for exactly what he heard. You know, almost like his own iambic pentameter, but uh, he's loosened up a little bit now and not too much. Like he still wants to hear a certain thing, but he's more interested in exploring it and throwing it around a bit, you know. But yeah, yeah, stop the eyebrows. Hi. How are you? I have a question about McDonough. So he, Madonna? Absolutely. <laughs> not you. <laughs> um, so he works in playwriting first. Is there anything from that world that he's brought over to film that you've picked up on that's been useful? Yeah, well, his plays were always very cinematic. You know what I mean? They were always had a certain kind of a dynamism to them. There was a lot of violence in his plays. You know, they... they they seem to explore similar themes, violence, uh, something ridiculous taking place, the consequences of something seemingly ridiculous and how that goes out into the world and creates just chaos. Um, so his plays were always, I mean, he always reached for the stars with his plays. While they didn't have big budgets and any um, hydraulics or anything, there was blood, there was stagehands squirting blood guns off. You know, there was always a kind of a cinematic element to them. So I think that, but it's mostly his dialogue 
you know, the characters he creates, the dynamics he puts them in, and how he allows those characters to articulate themselves. So his dialogue, but he was using theatre. Martin has said himself, I saw him in an interview once, he didn't say it to me, but he used theatre as a means to get to film. Film was his first love. And then, you know, he didn't know how to go about getting a film made, but he thought, if I write a play, I can get somebody to put it on somewhere. And that's what happened with the Druid Theatre in, in Galway, which was the first place that premiered his work, I think. Um, so, yeah. Hi. Hey, man. Hey. You were in two of my favorite films uh, this past year, uh, The Batman and Banshees, uh, two very different films. Uh, with the rise of superhero movies, the question of what is cinema has become begun to rise, and I wanted to ask you, what is your definition of cinema? Ah, to be honest with you, man, you put a camera on a bunch of actors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean... Uh, <laughs> Honest to God, do you know what I mean? It's, it would, it, I mean, does it have to play in a cinema to be cinema? Maybe. If you want to, if you want to get, you know, into the semantics. But I, I really just think, for me, for me, anything visual that moves, that has movement, that visual that speaks to you and that moves you through its movement or the articulation of and it can be I mean you've also some of you have seen Malik stuff it's not all about the human experience sometimes it's about the human pushing up against nature and vice versa and the impossibility of the beauty of nature and how we we, we try to get on top of it and and own it or you know so it's anything anytime you put a camera on anything that moves that has life that's organic that's cinema to me you know uh, hi, Colin. It is such a pleasure and honor to be able to speak to you tonight. You. Um, as Scott has mentioned, I feel like there's a really good case to be made that 2022 in film was the year of Colin Farrell. You starred in a handful of brilliant projects from After Yang to the Banshees of Inisherin, And I was wondering what it was your experience like to go from film to film like that in such quick succession, working with directors from many different backgrounds and artistic sensibilities, whether it be Ron Howard or Coco. Yeah, it was cool. I, I didn't do it all. I didn't do it all in a year. Like I did it. It all came out within. Did it come out in the same calendar yeah, year? From that. Yeah. But I, it was all over like two or two and a half years or something. And I was saying earlier on about finding it just interesting to go where my curiosity takes me in regards to either the characters that I've had the fortune to play or the worlds within which they exist and stuff. It's the same thing with directors, you know. I've worked with all these directors that have such different, remarkable styles. Like, Koganada is a genius as far as I'm concerned. His talk about cinema and his love for cinema, Koganada, which comes through in how he writes and directs after Yang was such a tender joy to shoot that. And then Batman was... Penguin was out there and that was so extremely different and and... Matt Reeves is an extraordinary filmmaker, and uh, so I it was I was spoiled, but I wasn't thinking of them. I wasn't thinking of a quartet or anything. Do you know what I mean? I really wasn't. I was just uh, saying earlier, you know, just very in the present and confused by whatever I was confused by in the moment, because I find them all confusing to do. Like I'm not, I'm not like I don't. I'm not always comfortable going to work and all that, and I still get nervous as anything. I'm not puking like I did the first day of Alexander, <laughs> but I get, yeah. So I, I felt I did feel I love Ron Howard. God, I mean, one of my favorite memories of cinema, film, movies was Parenthood. 
I think parenthood is such an underrated classic. I really do. And uh, and so working with, I mean, I also saw Happy Days when I was a kid, <laughs> him and the fans, you know, but <laughs> but uh, to work with Ron on 13 Lives, that was something that was obviously a real story that took place. And so, you know, in a world that's as fractured as this world, to be part of something that was about people from different origins, different cultures coming together to rescue the lives of these 13 kids and their coach. That was extraordinary. And uh, and then this I've already spoken about. So yeah, just kind of spo- really spoiled. Like I, I think I said earlier, I'd be pinching myself all the time, you know, over the last 25 years at different stages. And so it's a good bit of pinching. And Hi, I'm Hannah. Hey, Hannah. Uh, and my question was about what do you think makes a good director, actor dynamic or like more specifically a good director of actors? See, again, it's it's funny because I think everyone in this room has probably seen an extraordinary performance that was the result. And I'm not saying the reason why the performance was extraordinary, but the fact is it was the result of an incredibly acrimonious relationship between the director and the actor. So everything about what we're talking about, about theatre and about film and television and stuff, very little of it makes sense. Very little of it makes... We've all seen um, couples, romantic couples in film that really have an extraordinary chemistry and then you find out they fucking hated each other. (laughs) But that's not answering your question, but that happens and that's kind of interesting and just, for me, worth noting. For me, I love... um, like Peter Weir, right? Not, yeah. Just got an honorary Oscar. Yeah, he did. He got the honorary Oscar. Like, he's such an extraordinary director and filmmaker. And Peter Weir was so playful. And you'd, you'd do something in a take and he'd come up to you and you'd go, that was interesting, yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> I wonder if maybe this time you'd, uh, maybe. And he'd make a suggestion and he was kind of like, whoa. By the monitor, he was so, he was so connected and so curious and so interested and... It was just so inspiring to be around that level of connection. And I've talked to Oliver Stone about Oliver Stone earlier on and how connected Oliver was and how he was in the front lines. So I love when a director's connected. I also, I also kind of enjoy when a director's at times short and just, I w- I'd like a bit more of this or a bit less of this. So all of it, you, you, you definitely want to feel like you're being heard. That's all. You don't have to be heeded. You know, you don't have to be agreed with. That would be dull. Dull. I'm not dull, thanks. But you want to be heard. You know, you want there to be a dialogue, however long or short it may be. You want there to be a di- I mean, I want there to be a dialogue with the director. And I love direction. I love, I love doing different takes and mixing things up and, you know, trying to, find, trying to find the parameters within which the character exists, but do subtly different things take to take just to keep it alive and just to explore. And a director that's open to that and... You know, I, I hear there's some directors, and wonderful directors who made wonderful films, and I hear that they, I've heard the actor's stories and them going like, he gave me one take and he said, we're moving on. And actually, I worked with the director once, I won't say who, and he, uh, we did two takes, and I was like, oh, particularly shit the second time. Could I get another take? And he went, do you think you can do it better? And I went, you know what, fuck it, move on. <laughs> You're good, I'm grand, move on. So yeah, I think better, communication. Is that better or worse than like, the Christopher Nolan approach, or who is the one? The, who's the ones that you know? Fincher, rather. Uh, Fincher does a lot of takes. Like, would you Michael rather Mann do does a lot of takes? I mean, when you get up into eighty, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, there's been times where I've said, you know, break the crew for lunch and just leave me with the camera and tell me how to turn it on. 
Do you know, because I just, it drives me mad sometimes. You leave a scene and it's finished and you're like, that was just the worst, you know. So there's times where I want more and more and more. And look, film, like painting, like music, it, there's an argument for the idea that a piece of art is never actually fully finished. There's just a time that you got to walk away, you know, but it's never fully finished. And then another way in which it's never fully finished is that the audience takes it on board in whatever personal way they do. So it has a life after that, of course, but ideally, ideally. Well, Colin, on behalf of everybody here, thank you so much Thanks, for making Josh. the time. Thanks everyone for really coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.